chapter 15 and verse 34, where the Lord Jesus Christ takes the opening words of the 22nd Psalm and makes them his own. We read, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This verse is sometimes called the cry of a dereliction. It's the fourth of Jesus' seven sayings from the cross, the central one, and it brings us to the very heart of what was happening there that day upon the side of Calvary's hill. I'm calling the message from God's Word this morning the question at the heart of the answer. Because if sin is our problem, and if the cross is the answer, then this question brings us to the very heart of the answer. It brings us to the core of what was happening that day outside the city wall. A.W. Pink, in his little book on the seven sayings of Christ from the cross, describes this central one as being a saying of startling import, of appalling woe, of deepest mystery, of unique pathos, and of profound solemnity. And it is surely all those things and more. And it reminds us that Christ's sufferings at Calvary were supremely spiritual. I do not mean in any sense to diminish the physical suffering of our Savior upon the cross. That was very real and that was very intense. But nonetheless, Christ's sufferings at Calvary were supremely spiritual. As has often been said, the soul of his suffering was the suffering of his soul. Matthew Henry describes what our Savior is speaking of in our text as the withdrawing of the light of God's countenance. Martin Luther said of these words in our text this morning, God forsaken of God, who can understand it? And of course there is a sense in which we cannot fully understand what is going on here and what our Saviour speaks of in our text. And yet there is also a sense in which we must at least begin to try to understand something of what our Saviour is speaking of here and something of what it meant for God to be forsaken of God upon the side of Calvary's hill. I want us to think about these words this morning with the Lord's help under three headings. Number one, what these words don't mean. Because there have been and are those who would seek to put into these words a meaning uh, that they were never intended to have. But number two, what these words uh, do mean. Because there have been and are those who would seek to uh, take out of these words 
a meaning that has always been intended uh, to be there. And last, but by no means least, number three, what difference they should make. How should these words touch us and help us in our Christian lives and in our Christian experience, especially as we gather together around the Lord's table this morning? So first of all, what these words don't mean. And I've got four things for you here. Number one, they don't speak of a broken trinity. They don't speak of a broken trinity. The scriptures teach us that God is eternally one and three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one, a blessed trinity. And when Christ cries from the cross here in our text, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is not saying that that holy and happy communion between the persons of the Trinity had broken down. Here at Calvary, God does not cease to be triune. God is still Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together are still God. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit still enjoy that holy, that happy communion in the bonds of the Trinity. These words don't speak of a broken Trinity. Number two, they don't speak of a despised Son. They don't speak of a despised son. We know from the scriptures uh, that the father eternally loved the son. And we read in the scriptures of the father speaking audibly from heaven at Christ's baptism, again at his transfiguration. This is my son, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And these words do not mean that at Calvary the Father is not well pleased with his Son. No, if I can put it in this rather human way. The Father was never more pleased with his Son than in his dying hour upon the cross there upon the side of Calvary's hill. The Father didn't cease to love the Son not for a moment, not for a nanosecond. These words don't speak of a despised son. Number three, they don't speak of an inoperative spirit. They don't speak of an inoperative spirit. We read about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Lord Jesus, don't we, throughout the Gospels. We could think, for example, of how it was the Holy Spirit who conceived uh, the child Jesus in the womb of the Virgin. We could think about how it was the Holy Spirit who led the Lord Jesus at the beginning of his earthly ministry, immediately after his baptism, out into the wilderness that he might be tempted of the devil. And similarly, we understand that it was the Holy Spirit who sustained the Lord Jesus 
in all that he did, in all that he went through, and in all that he accomplished on our behalf upon the cross at Calvary. These words do not speak of an inoperative spirit that suddenly this Holy Spirit who had conceived Jesus in the virgin's womb and who had been with him all the way through his earthly life and ministry is now somehow gone and is no longer there and is no longer operative. But this same Holy Spirit who had been with our Savior all the way through is still with him now and sustaining him and helping him and blessing him. These words don't speak of an inoperative spirit. And number four, they don't speak of a sinful despair. The scriptures are clear that despair is sin. And note the language. Though the Lord Jesus speaks in this verse of being forsaken, yet still he addresses his Father as my God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, there is a sense in which here in the ninth hour, at the end of these three hours of darkness, the Father turns his face away from the Son. As his Son is made sin for us, so the Father must turn his face away. But though the Father turns his face away from his Son, the Son doesn't turn his back upon his Father. Though he feels forsaken, though he feels abandoned, though he feels bereft, still he says, my God, my God. So this is something of what these words don't mean. They don't speak of a broken trinity. They don't speak of a despised son. They don't speak of an inoperative spirit. And they don't speak of a sinful Despair. But secondly this morning, let's think for a few moments about what these words do mean. They, they must mean something. So we need to move from what they don't mean to, to what they do mean. Again, I've got four things for you. No doubt there could be many more, but we'll settle for four this morning. Number one, they speak of our sin. They speak of our sin. In a sense, we have in these words of our text the explanation of what was happening in Gethsemane. You remember how our Savior prayed to his Father. We have it recorded for us in Luke chapter 22 and verse 42. Luke 22, 42. Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We know that that prayer there in the garden did not mean that our Savior was unwilling to, to go to Calvary and to do as he had pledged to do in the count, from the councils of eternity. But we know that as our Savior contemplates what would happen there in the garden as he contemplates what would happen at Calvary the very next day. He would not have been truly human if he had not shrunk from that which was coming his way. To drink that cup. To be made sin for his people. 
to suffer, to bleed, and to die in our place and for our sin. And so Christ cries from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these words, they, they speak of our sin. That our sin is so sinful that the only way it could be dealt with was by the Son of God taking our place at Calvary and the Father turning his face away. These words speak of our sin. Number two, they speak of God's holiness. They speak of God's holiness. We must emphasize that this forsakenness of which our Savior speaks in our text, it was a real forsakenness. It wasn't just a felt forsakenness. There are those who would seek to water this down and say, well, Jesus may have felt forsaken, but of course he wasn't really forsaken. But no, he was really, he was truly forsaken of his Father upon the cross. We read in the Scripture of many tokens sent by his Father during his earthly ministry. We mentioned already the audible voice. The audible voice from heaven at his baptism. The audible voice from heaven at his transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We could think about visible signs. You remember at his baptism, not only was there the audible voice from heaven, but there was also the Holy Spirit that was sent, descending upon him like a dove. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as our Savior was praying, as we've just been touching on, you remember there was a strengthening angel was sent. The strengthening angel to help our Savior in the agonies of Gethsemane that he might be strengthened to face a Calvary. But here in the ninth hour, at three o'clock in the afternoon, when it's black dark, when the sun should be at its brightest, our Savior hears no audible voice. He sees no visible sign. He receives no visit from a strengthening angel. He feels all alone. And though he addresses his heavenly father as my God, he doesn't lose that. Yet you notice he addresses him as God, he addresses him as El. He doesn't dress him as on previous occasions, Abba, because he feels himself to be at a distance. He feels himself to have been forsaken. He feels himself to be abandoned. He feels himself to be all alone as he bears away our sin. Such was the holiness of God. But the Son was all alone. They speak of our sin. They speak of God's holiness. Number three. These words speak of Christ's love. They speak of Christ's love. It's not of course that Abba isn't there. That is not the problem. The reality is that Abba is there. And yet what is happening well, what is happening is this. As was prophesied by Isaiah hundreds of years before, 
the Lord Jesus is being numbered with the transgressors. And as would be described by Paul the Apostle some years later, the Lord Jesus Christ, the spotless Son of God, is being made sin for his people. God the Father, making God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And these verses speak of Christ's love for us, his people, that he would go to Calvary, that he would allow himself to be nailed to the tree, that he would suffer all that he suffered, both physically and spiritually, even that he would experience what it was to be forsaken of his Father for me, for you, that we might have our sins forgiven, be reconciled to God, and welcomed one day in heaven. These words speak of Christ's love. And number four, they speak of hell's fury. They speak of hell's fury. These words are spoken at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. You remember from the passage we read earlier, our Lord was crucified around about the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning. And then at the sixth hour, midday, twelve noon, as Spurgeon famously said, it was midnight at midday. Pitch black. And there were then these three hours of darkness from the middle of the day until three o'clock in the afternoon, the sixth hour until the ninth hour, three hours of pitch black darkness, during which our Savior upon the cross suffered the wrath of God due to us against our sin. He suffered all that hell could throw at him in those three dark hours upon the side of Calvary's hill. And we shall never, not even in eternity, we shall never understand the half of what our Savior experienced in those three dark hours upon the cross. So be clear these words, they speak of our sin. They speak of God's holiness. They speak of Christ's love. And they speak of hell's fury. But we've thought a little about what these words don't mean. And we've thought a little about what these words do mean. But we need to spend the remainder of our time thinking about what difference they should make. We shouldn't be able to just think about a text like this and think, well, yes, it doesn't mean that and it does mean this, but this text should touch us, this text should move us, this text should change us, this text should help us, this text should make a difference in our Christian life and our Christian experience. What difference should these words make? I've got a handful of things for you. No doubt we're only scratching the surface, but a handful of things, and then we're done. Number one, we cannot overestimate Christ's sufferings 
at Calvary. We cannot overestimate them. John Calvin had it right when he wrote, he suffered the terrible torments of a condemned and lost man. Never underestimate the sufferings of Christ, both physical and spiritual, at Calvary. It is impossible to overestimate them. Number two, we need a good knowledge of the Bible and especially the Psalms. Notice what the Savior does here in his darkest hour. In his darkest hour, what do we find him doing? We find him quoting the Scriptures. We find him quoting a Psalm. Let me ask you, my friend, this morning, what will you quote in your darkest hour? Oh, none of us will ever be called to go through anything quite like our Savior went through. But we will have our dark hours. If you have been a Christian any length of time already, you will have had dark hours. You may be a young and new Christian. If you're a Christian any length of time before either Christ returns or you are called home to glory, you will have your dark hours. And in your dark hours, what are you going to quote? We need to know our Bibles. Especially the Psalms are so helpful to us. We need to know the Psalms so that when everything around us moves, shifts, and gives way, we have the truth of God's Word which we can bring to our remembrance, upon which we can stand, and to which we can cling. <coughs> we need a good knowledge of the Bible and especially the Psalms. Number three, we will sometimes find ourselves asking God the question, why? That's what we find our Savior doing here in our text. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? There is a school of thought in Christendom that says that it is always wrong for the believer to ask God why. If that's your opinion, then with the greatest of respect, my friend, I ask you to ditch it right here, right now. We know, of course, it is a wrong way to ask God why. God, why? God's will seems to cross our will. And we ask why out of anger. No, we shouldn't do that. But just as there is a wrong way to ask why, there is also a right way to ask why. Not to ask why because we're angry with God and we want to put him at a distance. But to ask why because we simply don't understand. But we still want to believe and we want to draw near to God and like Job of old, to trust him even though he slay us. And so our Savior here, he asks why. 
And this is not a statement of doubt or of unbelief. It is a test question of of great faith and of, of dependence. But still he asks why. And there will be times in our Christian life and experience when it is good, right, necessary, and healthy to ask the Lord why. We will sometimes find ourselves asking God the question, why? Number four, we should never give in to despair. We never should. Our Savior didn't hear, and neither should we. Donald MacLeod has a very moving article called The Cry of Dereliction. You can find it on his blog. And he ponders this text that we're thinking about this morning. And during the course of that article, he he makes this statement. Though there was no sign of him, and though the pain obscured the promises, somewhere in the depths of his soul, there remained the assurance that God was holding him. I put it to you that that brings us really to the heart of our text. Let me give it to you again. Though there was no sign of him, Christ felt forsaken. And though the pain obscured the promises, all that Christ was experiencing physically and spiritually obscured his father's promises. Yet somewhere in the depths of his soul, there remained the assurance that God was holding him. And I'm sure there are many of God's dear people here this morning And you can testify to something of that experience. That there has been a time or times in your life when for one reason or another, in one way or another, you were called to walk through a very dark valley. You found yourself in a very dark place, in the midst of a very dark experience. And though there was no sign of him, and though the pain obscured the promises somewhere, Somewhere in the depths of your soul, there remained the assurance that God was holding you. We should never give in to despair. And then number five, this. Christ was forsaken at the cross that Christ that, that Christians might never be forsaken. He was forsaken. That we might never be forsaken. As someone once wrote, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul Though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Friends, our Savior was shaken upon the side of Calvary's hill as no human being ever had been or ever would be. 
And we too will experience our shaking experiences. Individually, we'll know what it is to be shaken. Our families may be shaken. Your congregation may be shaken. Lands and nations can be shaken. Sometimes it may feel that the whole world is being shaken. But the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, he will not, he will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, he'll never no, never, no, never forsake. Amen. Let's all pray together. O oh Lord, our God and our Father, how we bless you for your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the life that he lived, and especially just now for the death that he died, that he was willing to go all the way to Calvary, to be nailed to a cross of wood, to take our sin, and uh, to bear it all away. And oh, how he suffered, the physical agony of crucifixion, but more than that, oh Lord, the spiritual agonies of being made sin. Of experiencing all the fury of hell. But not least this. To be forsaken. Of his heavenly father. Oh Lord we cannot really grasp these things. We have sought to. Help one another a little. To think upon these things. This morning. Anything that has been said that is unhelpful or amiss, may we quickly forget it. But anything, O oh Lord, which may increase our affection for our dear Savior and our devotion to Him, may it take root in our hearts and may it bear fruit in our lives. We thank you that He was willing to be forsaken, that we might never be forsaken. And we thank you that whatever we may ever be called to, to go through, whatever we may ever find ourselves up against, you will hold us fast. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.